hopefully you're able to uh, find some time to unwind, relax, and recharge. Not always easy to do this time of year, uh, where, you know, sometimes time away from work simply means time running around. Sometimes it's running around in your own mind, planning. Uh, You know, we need to do this. I need to get together with this person. I still have these events that I need to attend. Sometimes it's running around and doing And maybe it's still last minute, even though we're about a week out from Christmas, but going and making sure that all your shopping is done, it's making plans. And then of course, when we make these plans, we kind of cross our fingers that the plans turn out the way that we envision, but hopefully things are going, uh, the way you want them to over this uh, Christmas season. I will say that I did have a really fulfilling weekend. I live in Edmonton and had a great time volunteering for a local charity. It's called the 630 Chad Sanders Anonymous. And with a name like that. Uh, you can probably immediately in your mind know what it's all about. It's a Christmas toy drive. And these sorts of drives, and they happen in in big cities, they happen in smaller communities. Some are toy drives, some are uh, hampers, uh, you know, providing food for people over the holidays. And something like a a toy drive like this, I've heard them described as sort of grassroots charities, and they are. I kind of think of them as very personal charities in the sense that you can get as immersed as you want in them. And some people really immerse themselves in these. So uh, for any toy drive, but uh, for Santa's Anonymous, uh, you go and if you're doing shopping over the Christmas season, if you are able and you're so inclined, you buy a new toy that will be donated to a child at Christmas time who otherwise wouldn't get any toys. And then you drop it off. There's usually bins provided in in major shopping malls and, and stores. And it can be as simple as that. And that could be the end of your involvement. But if you want to, you can then get involved and you can actually go and you can wrap those toys. And then if you want to take it a step further, and that's what this past weekend was about, you can actually volunteer and deliver the toy. So you can follow that gift from purchase right through to literally walking up, knocking on a door, having mom or dad come to the door, handing them the package, see the smile on their face, see the excitement of the kids who are sometimes just vibrating there because they kind of know that whatever is in that package is for them on Christmas morning. And it really, you know, I think anybody that volunteers and particularly for Christmas charities, I think people do it for the right reason because you know that the person on the receiving end is going to be grateful and really, really needs help at this time of year. Uh, And there may be just a sliver of selfishness because everybody that does the volunteering also gets something out of it and also feels so much better having done so with a a program like the one that I was uh, lucky enough to help out with over the weekend. It started 65 years ago and at the time served 200 kids. So there were 200 kids at that time that were benefiting from the program and getting those new toys on Christmas. And this year toys were delivered to 22,000 kids. So if you're involved in anything like that, hats off to you. Congratulations. Give yourself a pat on the back. Uh, and I know that you probably do it for all those right reasons to help out, to make somebody else's life brighter. And also somewhere deep down inside, you just feel a little bit better having done so yourself. Uh, and we know that the need is great. And we know that not every charity at this time of year is having an easy time meeting its own mandates. There is a big struggle out there. There was a a study recently, Fraser Institute, says the number of Canadians giving to charitable causes has hit a 20-year low with only 17% of us donating to such causes. And Canada Helps is also reporting a similar trend. Fewer people donating, and in some cases, those who donate, donate less. We're joined now by Senior Manager with Canada Helps, Nicole Denazian. Nicole, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, first of all, for those who may not be familiar, can you explain Canada Helps, what it is you do and how people can get involved through Canada Helps? Mm-hmm. Canada Helps has been around for the last 23 years, and we are an online donation platform allowing you to go to our website, canadahelps.org, and we list all 86,000 registered Canadian charities. So these are organizations that are registered with the Canada Revenue Agency. And we allow you to donate monthly, to donate a, make a one-time donation, donate securities, launch a fundraiser for your favorite charity. 
And over our 23-year history, we've uh, we're almost uh, we're about to reach three billion dollars raised. We'll we'll be reaching that quite shortly. Three billion dollars is a lot of money. So congratulations on that. Congratulations on the work that you're able to do. I'm curious in terms of the trending that you're seeing. Does that follow some of these other trends that that I mentioned off the top? Are we seeing? Uh, and we can get into the reasons afterwards, but are you seeing similar trends where uh, maybe Canadians are just not donating to the level that they were a few years ago? Mm-hmm. We we know that Canadians are very generous, and we how we have, however, been tracking trends over the last thirty years or so that really showcase the number of Canadians engaging in charitable giving has declined over the last thirty years. At Canada Helps, we are Canada's largest online donation and fundraising platform for Canadians. And so far this year, as of about December 3rd, where these numbers were pulled, we've raised about $318 million. So again, another really big number. But that is about a, a, a 2% decline from last year in terms of dollars raised. And keep in mind, we raise money for thousands of charities across the country, from food banks to homeless shelters to arts and cultures institutions. So a lot of this money is divided among those organizations. But in terms of the number of Canadians giving this year on Canada Helps, we've also seen about a 9% decline. So far this year, of course, there's still days left in the calendar year. But, uh, you know, we have certainly seen a bit of a softening. And so charitable giving is a very personal thing. So everybody would have their own reasons uh, why they give, why they might not be able to give in certain circumstances. But do you notice any any themes or any trends? Is it strictly driven by economic circumstances over the last couple of years? Or, or, or what's your take on, on why these numbers may be down? I think it really points to the economic climate that we've all been experiencing. But for some, certainly it's hit so many Canadians much harder than others. One of the things that we've also done at Canada Helps is we conducted an Ipsos uh, poll back in October and it revealed that two in 10 Canadians are currently accessing charitable services to meet essential needs like food and shelter. And on top of that, of those two in 10 Canadians that are accessing charities for essential needs, 69% of those individuals, so seven in 10 of those individuals that are accessing charitable services are doing so for the very first time this year. So it's quite staggering. And I think it really speaks to the level of demand. And of course, when, you know, pennies are pinched, the first thing that potentially goes is those non-essential needs. And unfortunately, a lot of the times the charitable giving um, falls under that. And we're joined by Nicole Denese, Senior Manager, Canada Helps. Canada Helps kind of, a, as you may have heard Nicole explain before the break, kind of almost a one-stop shop for Canadians to uh, donate to thousands and thousands of Canadian uh, charities. But uh, noticing a trend of fewer people donating over the last couple of years. Uh, and in some cases, those who donate are not able to donate as much as they would have in the past. So a disturbing trend uh, for some of the charities out there. Nicole, how do you how do you address something like that? There are so many charities. Uh, the, the the ask and the need are, are quite varied. Is there a way or are there strategies to try and chip away at reversing that trend or as we established before the break is because a lot of it is dependent on the economy is that out of the control of some of these charities we know that there are so many different ways to give also aside from just donating you you spoke about your experience of course volunteering um, at the charity that you did over the weekend so i think there are Certainly a number of creative ways that Canadians are able to support the organizations that they want to. Um, but we we are really hoping that sharing these numbers, both the dollar amounts and the, fu- the fundraising results that we're experiencing at Canada Helps, and also really shining a light on the demand, we're really hoping that those Canadians that potentially haven't donated yet for this year are able to do so before the tax deadline also of December 31st, which is fast approaching, and are able to to be as generous as they possibly can. I'm curious when it comes to getting the word out for charitable endeavors, where 
on the one hand, you may think, or, you know, I kind of had thought in the past that maybe with social media and the internet, spreading the word might become a little bit easier. But then you look at some of the contraction of traditional media and thinking particularly in some of the smaller centers, is is the word getting out the way that it used to? Is it, is it more difficult or less difficult, do you think, for some of these organizations to cut through in this day and age? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it really depends from charity to charity. One of the things that many Canadians are very surprised to learn about is that the majority of charities in Canada are actually very small organizations. About 78% of charities make about $500,000 or less in revenue every year. And these are very small organizations, your local food bank, for example, uh, your local arts and culture institution. And they run very tight budgets. They run very lean on staff and volunteers. And to put in that effort to get the word out is a lot of work and a lot of effort is put into it. You know, of course, there's so many changing trends in terms of social media. Things change on a dime all the time. Um, And charities have to adapt to that. And that has been quite a struggle, especially adapting to the digital trends that charities have had to to be faced with over the last several years. So I think it has been a little bit more challenging specifically for those smaller organizations that are really trying to keep up and do good work at the same time. And are there any examples of, I don't know if it's by region or by city or by town of, of, of localities where maybe they're bucking the trend and actually seeing an increase in people who are able to donate or contribute to some of these charities? Mm-hmm. We at Canada Helps released our most generous cities and towns list uh, last week. And although we didn't track this over time in terms of how these organi- or these cities placed last year, but our list actually revealed that a lot of small towns and cities have actually placed quite high in terms of the number of residents that are actively giving on Canada Helps. And keep in mind, as I said before the break, Canada Helps is the largest online and fundraising platform, online donating and fundraising platform in Canada. So Centre Wellington in Ontario actually came in at number one. They are a town of about 31,000 people and about 6% of those uh, individuals have actually donated on Canada Helps this year. Collingwood, Ontario placed number two. St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador, number three. Fort Erie, Erie excuse me, Ontario was number four. And Whitehorse, Yukon topped in the number five position. Well, good. Well, maybe that's a good place to end it. We'll end it on a positive note with those examples of uh, of generous communities. And we know most Canadians are very generous, but those communities in particular have sort of bucked the downward trend when it comes to uh, donating to charity. Nicole, thanks for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. During the holidays, loved ones are in our hearts, no matter where they are. Yes, they certainly are. And uh, for the balance of this week here on A Little More Conversation, we'll be talking to various Canadians who, for a variety of reasons, will not be home for Christmas. I think the aspirational Christmas is where everyone is able to spend time with family and loved ones. It is not always the case. Now, it's not always a bad thing. Some people do it by choice. Uh, Some people, it is certainly not their choice. And they wish and wish that they could be home to spend Christmas and the holiday season with loved ones. Uh, But there are others who maybe, uh, maybe their occupation requires them to be away from home for Christmas. There are others who do volunteer work that requires them to be away from home over the Christmas holidays. And then there are those, and I actually know more and more of uh, uh, people that fall into this category, and that's probably a result of the aging process, and maybe it's when people get a little bit older and maybe their families, uh, you know, their kids are a little bit older, and they say, you know, let's just do something different for Christmas. Let's, let's get out of here. Let's not think that we have to spend Christmas where there's two feet of snow and it's minus 20 out. Maybe we'll go somewhere warmer, or maybe we'll just kind of mix things up. And I think that's probably the category that our next guest uh, falls into. Uh, We're pleased to welcome to the show. We're going to call him a veteran Canadian broadcaster. He's worked in the National Hockey League for both the Winnipeg Jets 
and the Edmonton Oilers and currently hangs his headphones at 630 Chad in Edmonton, Alberta. Bryn Griffiths is our guest. Bryn, welcome to the show. How are you tonight? Hey, great, Sid. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks for asking. And I take it that you've spent, this won't be your first Christmas that you're spending away from home, or is it? Well, you know what? I, I was fortunate enough to go to the World Junior Hockey Championship in 2020, just prior to the pandemic. So that would have been December of 19 into January of 2020. And that was the first time I got away from the family. Actually, I think they were happy to have me out of the house, quite <laughs> frankly. But uh, I, <laughs> I had the opportunity to go to the Czech Republic and do some work covering that event. But I was away for 19 days. I missed them. I, I still don't know whether or not it was reciprocated in any manner. But it was a, a fun work trip for me. Really enjoyable. And the only other time I ever remember being away at Christmas is I spent one Christmas in Phoenix, Arizona, and it didn't seem right to me as a kid who grew up on the prairies in Edmonton. And I just wasn't uh, wasn't snowy enough, wasn't hot enough. It was uh, it was a bit of an adjustment for me, but I, I got over it pretty quick after the second jump in the pool. And I've heard from people that say you will get over it very quick because I've been encouraged uh, at times to say, well, why don't we go somewhere warm over, over, over the Christmas holidays. And my thing is, well, okay, well maybe we can leave on boxing day because to me, I just, I'm old fashioned and I have it in my head that it needs to be cold and there needs to be snow or it's not really Christmas. I know I got to get over that because millions of people enjoy Christmas just fine when they're not freezing. Uh, But I am curious, Bryn. So the first time you were sort of contemplating spending Christmas away from home and in fact, like out of the country, uh, what, factors did you have to take into consideration to say yeah okay this kind of makes sense and i want to give it a shot just to see how it goes well the the phoenix thing just was a great opportunity and uh, so i was happy to kind of scamper away with the family at that time uh, i guess if i could do it a little differently i would probably uh, leave as you said on boxing day and not come back until sometime in march or early april <laughs> instead of going away for two weeks over the holidays yeah, that kind of that kind of yeah. redefines uh, the holiday season if you're not coming yes, back until does. march I, I am stretching our conversation just a little bit on that. So let's throw that one out. Let's talk about the uh, Czech Republic experience. For me, it was a great opportunity. A, a very good friend of mine, uh, Paul Almeida, runs a, a, a tour company out of Edmonton, but services all of Canada. It's called Lazarcan Tours. And he he takes traditionally between 250 to 300 people to any of the world hockey junior hockey championships in Europe. That's the area he specializes in. And I... Uh, I kind of got hooked up with Paul not long ago, and he said, why don't we do some podcasting and have some fun on the tours? So, uh, you know, I talked to the family at home, and I said, look, I'm going to be away. Does anybody want to come and join me at the World Junior Hockey Championships? And then they they Googled and went online and recognized that it wasn't going to be 30 degrees. It was going to be around <laughs> plus one. And that's when I lost the entire family. But I still had to come over and, and have some fun watching what has become a real Canadian classic over the holiday season. So for me, it was a great chance to get away and see a little bit of Europe I'd never seen before and a chance to watch some great hockey. And I really enjoyed it. Okay. So what was that first experience like? So you get over there now, you're in a different country and yeah. now you're with a bigger group. So at least you have people that you can converse with and, uh, and, 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 and those sorts of things, but there otherwise, I'm sure there's a bit of a language barrier and maybe some cultural differences that maybe you knew about, but it might be, a little bit different to experience it firsthand once you once you get there. What was that like? Well, I went a few days ahead of the group to Prague, and that's where we started. Even though the event wasn't in Prague, it was in Ostrava and Trinich, and that was up in the northeast corner of the what was then the Czech Republic. And so getting an opportunity to go to Prague to kind of get my feet wet was perfect because English is just as easily spoken as Czech was. So for me, it was just a great experience just to immerse myself in what I think is one of the greater European cities. It's uh, it's just fabulous. It's right out of a movie set. And not only that, the, the people were fantastic. I really enjoyed it. It was a real great experience for me. But uh, it was it was still not Canada. You know, you still had to work your way through the language barrier a little bit, but you could always. Here's what I learned. And I learned this from previous European trips is that the best way to figure out who can speak English and who cannot look for younger, uh, younger uh, adults. 
who's mm-hmm. got a knapsack and maybe a ball cap on or something, because there's probably going to a college or a university in whatever country you're in. And the one thing they love to do is practice their English. So you've got a pretty good head start there. You don't go to people my age who are of a veteran age, uh, certain vintage. You don't want to do that <laughs> you, you, uh, because they, don't, they, will not speak, they will not speak English. So I just learned to, to try to find somebody in their 20s. Uh, and that's how I was able to maneuver through the first five days in Prague. By the time we got up uh, to the uh, the northeast part of the country with our group, who I caught up with, we, you know, you're kind of in your own little insulated group, so you're able to pretty much get by. And it, but it was a great experience. Not only that, did that, but did some side trips on off days. Did, did Vienna one day. I was determined to get up to to uh, to Poland because. We were only about an hour and a half away from Auschwitz, and I, 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 you know, it's such a, it's such a historical place with such a horrible and diabolical history to it. But I was determined that I wanted to do that, so I convinced about a hundred of the three hundred and fifty people, along with Paul, that maybe we should take a bus up there. And uh, I was advised by a few of my friends who were from Poland who said, look, if you're going to do that in the morning, make sure you hit up Krakow in the afternoon because it will lighten the load. Emotionally, it's such a tough experience uh, going to a concentration camp that's considered probably one of the most evil places on earth. But we were able to do side trips off of that World Junior experience. And it just it just took a wonderful experience and just made it that much more rich. So uh it, I was able to kind of adapt a little bit, but it was it was a fun, fun trip, and it was something I'll never forget. It was, uh, I don't want to dwell on it too much, but was that experience at a concentration camp is, well, what was that like emotionally? Well, there's two things. One, I, I was determined to take my mobile device, and it stayed in my coat the entire time I was there. I did not need to take pictures. I wanted to take pictures through right. my lens, which is my two eyes. And uh, and I think that that made it it was a very humbling experience for me. But you're so overwhelmed. I think I was I was taken back more by the experience a day later than I was when I was actually there because it's coming at you pretty strong. And uh, it wasn't as emotional, but I found two or three days later, I I really started to feel it a little bit. And uh, it it was I'm glad that that I did it. I'm glad some people came with me, but it was, uh, you know, it's. It was it was a side trip that many of us at the World Juniors did, not just our group, but other people. I, I know Gordon Miller from TSN uh, was there along with Ray Ferraro doing the broadcast, and they they drove up there on their off day. Numerous other groups and people that I know did the exact same thing because if you're going to be that close to something that historical, you want to make sure that you stop in and take it in. And it was it was very numbing. And like I said, I think there was an after effect for me. And this is the show within the show for this week. Won't be home for Christmas. Not everybody can spend Christmas at home. Some people are forced to be away from home for whatever reason. It could be work. It could be their volunteer gig. Uh, And then there are others that, and a lot of people, and this seems to be a growing trend, are who choosing to spend uh, Christmas away from home. Our guest uh, right now is one of those people, veteran broadcaster Bryn Griffiths, who is planning to spend Christmas, who will be spending Christmas uh, in Sweden this year and has previously spent uh, Christmas a couple of years ago, I guess three or four years ago now, in Czech Republic. In both cases, they're uh, traveling to uh, view firsthand what many Canadians look forward to watching on television over the holidays, which is the World Junior Hockey Championship. Brent, I'm curious about that uh, that first Christmas in the Czech Republic, Czechia away from home, what was Christmas Day itself like? Because the tournament doesn't start until Boxing Day, or or is that right. was that yeah. the case then? Yeah. So what was Christmas Day like? Well, it's really quite a quiet day, as you would expect. It's just a little bit different. I think I got to sleep in a little bit, but there's still activity going on. The one thing that I really kind of enjoyed about the European experience back in 2020 was all the Christmas markets and all the squares and all the little towns and all the big cities. Uh, everybody's kind of got a, a Christmas market and uh, they go right until Christmas day and then they shut down. But for me, it was an opportunity just to get out and walk around. I just, uh, I couldn't get enough of taking in and soaking in the atmosphere. And uh, it was, it was, it was a lot of fun that way, but I, it was very different. The other thing that I remember vividly about uh, our trip over there in 2020 was the church bells, the church bells. We don't hear a lot of church bells in Canada. It's not quite the same. Right. And yeah. you, you hear the church bells ringing and echoing down the small, narrow streets. 
it's it's right out of a movie it's uh, it's quite it's quite exciting but the big thing for them is christmas eve uh, they get they get all prepped up and then it's a little quieter on christmas day and then everybody's kind of making their way out for dinners in the evenings but it's it's very similar to how it is here at home but just a few little small differences now i'm i'm curious for most uh, people there would would turkey or ham be on the menu for Christmas dinner, or is it a completely different menu traditionally over there? I remember, I remember Sid having turkey, uh, but I do remember there was some ham. Uh, you know, it's uh, there's, there's a lot of similarities. There was one dinner that I talked to. Now, while I was with the group, we had a Christmas dinner, but you talked to a lot of people around the the communities. And the other one too was goose. Was another one that I heard goose. a little bit about. Yeah. And uh, I, I thought that was, you know, uh, right out of Charles Dickens, a Christmas Carol, uh, that type of thing. <laughs> but, uh, but they, you know, they, I guess you, you eat what you can find. Right. And, and so you're, you've, you've made the decision that you're going to spend another Christmas away from home. Uh, same reason, uh, following the world junior hockey championship, Sweden this year, correct? Yeah. And I think there's a few reasons for that. One is it's a great experience to go with Paul and another 350 people. Also, from a sporting perspective, it is kind of fun. This is an event. So many. This is, I think, my sixth that I've I've watched and covered, but this is only the second one where I've been away from the country. And the one thing I learned out of the last experience in 2020 is it's really kind of neat to watch your team win the gold medal in a foreign country with about 300 to maybe 500 people because there's other tour groups there in Ostrava where they held the gold medal matchup. The arena sat 9,000. And I think there were about maybe 2,500 Canadian fans who had made their way there. So to hear everybody singing Oh Canada after a gold medal championship, it's kind of us against the world was really kind of special. So, so there was that, that aspect of it. But my life so has changed dramatically. Sorry, Sid. Oh, no, no, no. I, I didn't mean to cut you off there. I was just going to say it's, it's a bit of a bold statement to say in advance that you're going over there because you love the experience of watching Canada win a gold medal on foreign soil. So are you that? Are you confident in Canada's team this year? I'll have to, I, full disclosure, no. I have no idea where we stack up now in terms of the World Junior Hockey Championship. The, the team that I think is going to win it all is the USA, I think is going to win this year. But they are in a much smaller, lighter pool uh, is probably the best way to put it. They're in with Norway, Switzerland, Slovakia, and Czechia. Canada is in pool A. We've got to deal with Finland. We have to deal with Sweden. We have Latvia and Germany in there. I'm not so much worried about Latvia and Germany. I'm pretty sure Canada will find a way to advance out of that. But I, I think the Americans have got a much easier route this time. The only thing that I think is another Canadian concern is Sweden are on home ice. They haven't won in a, in a while. So perhaps they're ready to up their game. So I'm not getting cocky here, but I, <laughs> uh, I just wanted to go because I thought it would be a great experience. And the other thing, too, I was just going to say, my life has changed a lot in the last four years. I returned home from uh, the Czech Republic in January of 2020. And I had not been feeling that great while I was over there. And I got back and I collapsed at home about two weeks later. And I was discovered to have a, uh, a tumor in my stomach. And I was diagnosed with stage four stomach cancer. So I immediately got into hospital and they determined that we needed to do some surgery to try to save my life. And so I had my entire stomach removed in March of 2020. And then it was going to be basically up to me to see whether or not I could beat cancer back, which I have done. And uh, I'm very lucky. I had a great surgeon, took the my stomach completely out, took the tumor completely out with it. Nothing has spread and nothing appears to have spread. So I'm kind of on extra bonus time now. So anytime I get an opportunity to do a trip like this or a trip, I did a trip to Rome and Italy with uh, my better half, Lori, about uh, 14 months ago. I don't waste any opportunities now, Sid. I live for now. And I have heard people, and thank you for sharing your personal story with us. I, I have known people that have been through uh, similar or maybe somewhat similar circumstances, and they do say that it, it can give you a different, a different perspective and a different outlook on life, and it seems that that's what it's done for you as well. Well, absolutely. I think what, what happened is I had about a month and a half before the surgery, and I look back at what I've done in my life, both in, you know, with the family and personal, and also what I've done in my career. And, you know, I, th I, I guess I was kind of at the point where I said to myself, uh, I think I've done okay. I know I was 60 at that point, 
but I was somewhat, uh, I was coming to terms with the fact that if there is a light at the end of the tunnel and it's a freight train to use the old joke, uh, I'm going to be okay with that. I just, I was more worried about my family than I was about me. And now that I've been given these bonus years, I'm planning on utilizing it to the utmost. Well, and uh, and one of those experiences that you're about to uh, to get to is to uh, spend Christmas away from home in Sweden. Have you done a lot of background on Sweden? Did you already know much about it? Uh, what are you looking forward to most about this trip? Well, I've traveled a fair bit through Europe, but I had not done Scandinavia. The fun part for us on this trip as a group is that we're going to, I, we're, I'm starting off in Stockholm. I'm going to fly on Thursday, Edmonton through Amsterdam to Stockholm, spend a few days in Stockholm, and then we're going to take the bullet train into Gothenburg, which is where the event is. On the off days, you want to do stuff. So we're going to spend one day and bus up to Oslo in Norway. I'm looking forward to seeing the the, uh, the portrait, the scream. Uh, I, so I've always wanted to see that picture. It's one of my hit list things. The mm-hmm. other thing, too, is on another off day, we're hitting Copenhagen in Denmark. So we're going to try to move around a little bit on those off days, just like we did in 2020, where we did Vienna and Prague and also, uh, as I said, uh, Krakow. Uh, we're trying to do as much of that as we possibly can. Also came back through uh, Austria, Vienna, and Salzburg, and Munich. So we're trying to cram some other stuff in on the off days. So for me, this will be a real eye-opener for me because I have not been through that neck of the woods. So uh, I call it a pre-scouting trip. That's what that's how I sold it here at home to Lori. It's a pre-scouting <laughs> trip. <laughs> well, it uh, you know, and, and oddly enough, it, it, it does seem that I know everybody likes warm weather, but it does seem that if you're going to go to Scandinavia, that winter and Christmas time might be the exact right yeah. time to do it. I imagine it's going to be quite beautiful there. The shock for me right now is that they're getting winter and I'm in Edmonton and we are not. In fact, looking out at our front and backyard, it's brown. Uh, no snow. It was plus five today. They're talking about plus seven here on on Thursday and plus five again on Friday. It's been an incredible winter here. El Nino, obviously, but I am going to winter. I noticed in Stockholm, they've got three days of snow just before I get there. Uh, Stockholm gets more snow. Uh, Gothenburg's a little more Vancouverish with its weather. It's a little more damp. It can get snow, but for the most part, we're prepping for rain. But hey, I don't care. I'm just going to go and have some fun. Well, and it's not only where you are in Edmonton. There's a lot of people we've been hearing from listeners uh, pretty much right across the country uh, yeah. that a lot of locales are experiencing that same very, very unusually mild uh, weather for this time of year. Uh, and as you say, we know the reason why for that, but it is still doesn't make it any less unusual that uh, we're basking in this kind of weather only a few days yeah. from Christmas. Uh, Brent, it's been a terrific conversation. Thank you for joining us. Uh, great to hear about your experience in Czechia a few years ago. And, uh, and I trust that you're going to have a great time coming up here in Sweden. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Ed. Great catching up with you, too, by the way. Uh, Brent Griffiths, a veteran broadcaster. He's worked for a couple of uh, NHL teams as well. Uh, So obviously a hockey aficionado. He went to, uh, at the time, Czech Republic to watch the World Junior Hockey Championship just before the pandemic hit, and he's going this time uh, to uh, Sweden as well. So uh, Brent Griffiths, as we uh, will be featuring different people, over the course of the rest of this week, who, for whatever reason, won't be home for Christmas, Bryn Griffiths in Sweden uh, for the World Junior Hockey Championship. For those who can't make it home this holiday season, our thoughts are with you. If only in my What we want to talk about right now are math scores. Reading scores, too. Uh, In both cases, scores have been dropping. And I know when the topic first comes up, one of the first things I thought, was this the result of maybe the pandemic and you're in school, you're out of school, you're you're, you're being schooled from home, now we're back in the the classroom. But these these scores have been declining uh, for about five years now, predating the onset of the pandemic. And so we wanted to try and see if we could kind of shed some light on why that might be, how concerned we might be. And is there anything we're attempting to do to reverse that trend? We're joined by Anna Stocky, who is a math professor at the University of Winnipeg. Anna, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, how, so first of all, how much and how rapidly are our math scores declining in Canada? 
Sure. So the thing to think about when you're talking about comparing scores is what the trend is like over time. And so since 2003, scores in Canada have dropped 35 points um, in some provinces more than others. So, for instance, Alberta, 45 points, Manitoba, 58 points. And PISA, the OECD, which runs PISA, is saying 20 points is about a year of schooling. So it's actually a pretty significant decline. That seems, yeah, that does seem quite drastic, quite dramatic. And so then naturally the, you know, we start thinking about why, why, what, what's factoring into that? Why are we seeing these scores decline at that pace? Sure. And we can never really know for sure what's causing the decline in scores, but we can think about some things that have changed over that time. And some of the things are, well, the curriculum has changed in almost all provinces. And when we started seeing the biggest declines, we're probably after the changes in curriculum in about 2006. Um, other things that are happening, well, you know, there's just a lot of ineffective methods being pushed, like philosophies being pushed for how to teach math, which are essentially ineffective. And we see this across the, the country. So those are some of the things I would look at. I also think um, phones, smartphones in schools are are probably contributing to some of the problems. They're very distracting. It's been shown that they negatively impact learning. So those those are some pretty big pieces of the puzzle that I guess societally we need to figure out. The, The two that I want to focus on most, I mean, we can see certainly it makes complete sense that if, if students are distracted by what's happening on their smartphone, that that's going to affect their ability to concentrate and their ability to learn and apply what they're learning uh, in their studies. But curriculum and the philosophy of how we teach math, first of all, in terms of the changes to curriculum, is this, are we talking about what, you know, to, to kind of dumb it down a little bit, we were referring to at one time as new math versus old math, or is it something different with that? Yeah, yeah, probably most people would see it that way for sure. So one thing to keep in mind with math, it's really cumulative. And so if you get behind in math, it's it can be really hard to get caught up later on. It requires a lot of practice, and you really need to have good basic skills. So, like, you need to have your times tables memorized. Otherwise, it's going to be really difficult to do things later. You need to be really good at fraction arithmetic and things like that. And so some of the things that have happened is you'll hear people sort of saying, oh, practice is boring and, and, you know, kids shouldn't be sitting around doing worksheets and and things like that. And when we say things like that, it really isn't good for kids, right? Like they need a lot of practice to get good at math. And so those are some of the things that come with this philosophy that we we sort of see a lot of in in schools right now. And, And it's not helpful. Like, Everybody should know that kids need a lot of practice to get good at math. They need to be taught really well. And we're not seeing that in a lot of cases. And when there's a fundamental shift in terms of the curriculum, does it matter that then you may have had parents at one point who um, used to be able to help their kids with homework or used to be able to at least understand what, what the homework was and, and give some, some tips or some pointers, and the parents themselves may have just felt like they were now out of the equation because they didn't understand it themselves necessarily. Well, sure. And I mean, honestly, a lot of the methods that they, they teach for arithmetic in schools are very confusing. And so if the parents can't understand it, that's probably a good indication that it's probably not going to be very understandable for a kid. And most of those methods that the parents learn, so for instance, like addition with a carry, that sort of thing, those really are the best ways to teach basic arithmetic in the first place. But I completely agree with you that if you're teaching methods in school that parents can't, you know, and we're in a position where parents can't help their kids at home, that's not going to be helpful. Uh, the, uh, the outlook has not been good for a while now for Canadian math students. We've seen scores on the way down. And our guest tonight is Anna Stocky, math professor at the University of Winnipeg. We do want to talk about maybe what can be done to to reverse this trend. But I'm also curious, just in general terms, 
you know, and I, I don't know that I've ever heard anybody just kind of throw up their hands and say, I'm just not good at geography or, you know, I just, I'm just not good at history. But there are so many people that will quite willingly offer, present company included at times, I must admit, I'm just not that good at math. What, what is it about math for so many people that, is it, is it just, is it intimidating on some level? Is there a different part of our brain that we use that, that we, we don't as easily access? Why do so many people feel that they are, quote, just not good at math? Well, it's cultural. So this isn't the case in all countries. Um, it, it's a North American thing, I would say, that people do tend to say things like that, where they, whereas, as you noted, they wouldn't say it with reading. I don't know. Um, I think sometimes people didn't receive good instruction. They have it, an idea in their minds that there are math people and non-math people, which likely isn't the case. Probably most people can learn math to, you know, a certain a certain level so that they can participate and be numerate citizens. It, it's sort of an unfortunate um, aspect of our culture, but yeah, I agree with you. It, it is an issue. It must be frustrating as a math professor to hear that from time to time. Well, I don't allow that sort of talk in my classes because, well, it is, it's not helpful, right? I don't think people should think like that. Um, but, but no, I'm, I'm quite used to it, actually. Yeah. Kind of a defeatist attitude if you're going into math class with that kind of an attitude. I can certainly understand where you're coming from there. So what do we do? What, how, do we, how do we right this ship? How do we turn it around and, and start getting math scores in this country going in a different direction? I know it seems like a very tall order, but are there, are there baby steps that we could be taking to, to, to make this better? Oh, sure. So I do have some ideas for this. Um, so, so first of all, there have been issues with reading, and people are starting to realize that some mistakes were made with how children were taught to read. And so now we're seeing sort of a shift where people are embracing phonics again and things like that. And I think we need a similar shift in math. And so I would urge politicians and, and parents to pay attention to who's providing the professional development to teachers and the programs that teachers are using for math. And, you know, if they are downplaying the need for kids to be explicitly taught, if they're devaluing student practice, if they can't provide good evidence for why their programs should work, I really don't think that those kinds of programs should be used. Those are, those are pretty big red flags. So that's the first thing I would say. Um, the second thing, I, I think accountability to parents and the public are, are really helpful, like really clear report cards, letting uh, parents know where their kids are at um, through testing and things like that because parents are, parents are important partners, right? They can advocate mm -hmm. for their children in the schools, but if they don't have information about how their kids are doing in school if the, or if the information isn't accurate, they can't help. So those are a couple of things I would recommend. It, it almost seems like, uh, uh, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but a call to kind of, in some ways, almost a return to, to the basics. Yeah, people often do um, take what I say in that way. And, and for sure, I think that the foundational skills are really important. And remember, at the end of the day, we do want people to be able to problem solve. We want them to be, to be able to solve complex math problems. But you can't get there if you don't have a really strong foundational skills, right? So I suppose I do agree with that statement that I think it is really important to do the, to make sure that kids get those strong foundational skills. And honestly, you know, I would I would I think that provinces really do need to consider cell phone bans in schools. Like this is happening in other countries, the UK is going to be implementing a cell phone ban, the Netherlands is going to be, France, Italy, Portugal. You know, this is it's well known at this point that phones actually do really negatively impact learning. Um, they're, they have other, they cause other problems for, for kids, you know, depression, that sort of thing. So 
I think it would be a good idea to implement cell phone bans. Well, uh, and you know what? I, I tend to agree with that. I know there are some companies now that will ban cell phones in certain company meetings and because it is a distraction even for adults, and so you can certainly see where uh, it could be a major distraction and an impediment to learning and, and focus for, uh, for very young students trying to, trying to grasp some of these, uh, these newer concepts that we're trying to teach them. So uh, a lot there, and, uh, and hopefully we'll be able to stem the tide and, and turn this in a, in a, in a bit of a, a different direction when it comes to not only our math scores, uh, but our reading scores and all the rest of it. We appreciate uh, spending some time with you tonight. Thanks for coming on the program. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So we're joined uh, tonight by Garth Davies, Associate Professor from the School of Criminology at Simon Fraser University. Garth, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks for having me, Sid. Well, this is certainly a very serious story, very important story, and I think it, it uh, frankly, probably frightens a lot of people, uh, particularly when we start talking about uh, very young people, people still in their teens that have seemingly been radicalized. And, of course, with pending... Uh, charges and investigations and upcoming court cases. And and still, uh, you know, we learn about these cases in sort of bits and pieces. So uh, we'll probably find out more in the coming days and weeks about these specific uh, cases that uh, came to light over the last uh, several days. But we did want to talk about just radicalization, how it's happening, who it's happening to, and maybe uh, what can be done to try and uh, put a lid on it, or at least uh, maybe some early warning signs. So uh, maybe we just start in terms of uh, of some of these incidents. Are we? Is this a is this a growing problem? Uh, we've been hearing about it for a while, but but where do you where do you come at this from in terms of of how how prevalent this might be right now? Uh, in in a word, Sid, increasing. Um, you know, it's it, it, it's coming from a fairly um, low base level, but. Um, it, it's, it's, I think it's more prevalent than people uh, in Canada in particular want to imagine that it is. We are lucky enough to live in a society uh, here in Canada where um, we, we, we feel as though we've been largely immune from a lot of this, but it, it is happening on an increasing basis. The things that we've seen over the last couple of days are really sort of tip of the iceberg. The, these behaviors, these sorts of circumstances are happening on a more routine basis where we're seeing increasingly young people being caught up into this orbit and if not doing you know explicitly things that are violent extremism certainly on the wrong path on the path that may lead them down that road so where does this where does this come from are there are there certain youth that may be more susceptible to this and and how are they being drawn into this radicalization yeah that the million dollar question and it, it's hard because there isn't any one answer so there are <laughs> A variety of unique paths, but I think there are some paths that are um, that are pretty, you know, consistent across a, a, a larger number of them. Um, one of them, I think, is the uh, sort of anxieties and fears and concerns that young people have these days. I'm not saying that they're any worse um, than they ever have been in the past, but in terms of ways of dealing with them and 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 young people's uh, sort of this overwhelming this sense of you know sort of the way the world is seems to be creating um, a sense of vulnerability that can then be preyed upon by people that want to do so. Um, there is also, uh, I, I think, it, you know, the, the irony of the, of the time that we live in with all of this extra connection that we all have theoretically with social media has also made some people feel more, um, more lonely, more disconnected than ever. And they're out there in, you know, the, the, the electronic ether trying to find connection. And there are lots of people out in that electronic world that are more than happy to provide that sense of connectivity for causes that are problematic. And, and there are a lot of uh, really serious issues over the last several years as, as the world, you know, through the internet and through, through social media seems to shrink just a little bit. And you're right that people that maybe aren't feeling that connection and are, are feeling that maybe they've lost their way and are not sure what, what this is all about and what this all means. And we're talking in very broad and general terms here, but then when, when they, when they find a group or someone that's willing to, to bring them in and, and, and to find connections with them, uh, what they're really doing is they're, they're, they're preying on these kids. Absolutely. And it, it, it's, you know, they're, 
they know what they're doing. In the cases of people that are, are, are out there actively recruiting, um, you know, this isn't accidental. They, 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 they understand who they're looking for. They understand what those signs are. And, it, you know, for many of them, it becomes, um, you know, a, a role that they fulfill for their movement or their organization. So because um, these things don't often happen overnight. Um, you know, it's a, it's a period of time. So they will befriend people. They will act as though they are friends um, or even just the idea of, 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 of these uh, individuals who, if they feel socially marginalized, now they have a place to belong. And increasingly, you know, they're drawn into that sphere of wanting. I mean, isn't that especially at a young age? I mean, my recollection of being a youth was that that was the entire being being young was the search for where do I belong? Who am I? And where people are having concerns or problems with finding answers to that, there are people out there that are willing to help them, um, you know, come come to our group, be part of what we think. And, and it seems absolutely diabolical that there are people out there that are approaching this in terms of recruitment with that exact intent, knowing, as you say, that so much of growing up, so much of being a teenager is trying to figure out where we belong and, and, and where is our community? And that there are those people uh, in probably every corner of the world that, uh, that have, in a sense, perfected these techniques to draw these people in and then at some point uh, really feed into that radicalization. So are they starting from, are, do you think in, in cases they're starting from a, a zero base point or some of these teens already... Uh, looking at information and thinking, okay, well, maybe this is what I believe or maybe what I'm being told isn't right? Or do you think that some of these organizations and some of these groups are, are, are just like getting in there and planting that seed themselves that this is what you're being told isn't right and this is, what, this is how things really are and this is what you should believe and this is why you should help us? I don't think it's in either or, Sid. I think you've, I think you've hit both sides of the, I, I think that they're willing to go either way. I, I think that, and if we look at, at you know, uh, different websites or different online avenues of trying to um, connect with people and bring them into movements, um, they are pitched at different levels. So there are some materials are out there are very innocuous, a lot of memes a lot of different kinds of ways of associating to try to bring in people who otherwise may have had no inclination at all to even think about these issues. So you're trying to, you're trying to start by drawing them into that orbit of political conversation. Um, but, and, you know, and there are other avenues for people that are already have begun to look, um, you know, for whatever reason they've started to investigate for themselves. Oh, you know, um, what is this conversation about anti-Semitism? What's going on with the, the Jewish community, which is sort of the focus of the most recent cases? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so I, I think you're looking at again in, in in a more sophisticated way. There are multiple. It, 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 it's sort of the throwing the peanut butter sandwich against the wall, right? Like you know, we're going to try a whole a variety of different techniques to try to to uh, access people from a different a variety of different starting points. Is it all based on religion? Not at all. No, I mean, I think in some respects we um, are still stuck in the religion framework because of the situation that happened with the Islamic State and Al Qaeda in the early 2000s. But I mean, right now, um, it is much more ideological. It is much more, I mean, if, we, if we're talking about the anti-Semitism, if we're talking about the anti-LGBTQ, that is um, really more uh, really falling under the extreme right ideological spectrum of things. And so all we're, we're, you know, we're and, and this is the history of violent extremism, is at any given point in time, a particular tract will be sort of at the forefront. The other ones don't go away. But I would say right now, no, religion is not really what we're, what we're talking about here. I would argue that it's more of an extreme right ideological framework that these kinds of issues are just falling within. Well, it certainly does seem that we've never, and I wouldn't say this just about Canadians or just about people in North America, but you look right around the world and it just seems there's this, this incredible gulf between uh, the you know, right and left, if we want to boil it down to just, mm-hmm. just those two perspectives, where... There, you know, there was a time, and maybe this is just again goes to about you know the internet and social media. But there was a time, and it doesn't seem like it was all that long ago, where even opposing politicians could agree on a basic set of facts that they could agree on. These are the principles that that we believe in in our democracies, and then the you know the differences are in the margins. We you know we we all believe in this, but we just had differences of opinions on how we achieve that. But now it just seems that we can't even agree on the basics. 
I, I would agree 100 percent. We we use this term polarization a lot these days. Right. And it's um, but but it's become so uh, ubiquitous that I don't think we always think about what that actually means. We're not actually having conversations with each other anymore. We're actually talking, you know, past each other as, you know, as you said, putting it in large, you know, left, right, just for the sake of having, you know, for, for, for us to be able to talk about it. But there, the idea of political compromise, for example, like to me, um, has, in, as you said, in a very short period of time, become almost, almost an, an anachronism. Like, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when that was just the standard way of thinking about things. Like, as a politician, you still had to function to do things. It was never, it wasn't a matter of, it's our way or no way. It's, we're going to blow up the government if we don't get our way. But that's not the kind, you know, and it said it's not Canada, it's not North America. We're seeing elements of this play out. So, um, you know, and it, people that are following this ideal, you know, these sort of ideological trends are just getting what was once the, was once the extremes is now increasingly the bulk of these, of, of these groups. Extremism of all kinds is problematic, and we're just seeing those fringes grow larger and larger. And our guest is Garth Davies, Associate Professor, School of Criminology at Simon Fraser University. You may have heard the news over the weekend, Global News reporting on the arrest of a teenager accused of plotting a terrorist attack against the Ottawa Jewish community. That minor was taken into custody on Friday and was the second youth arrested for terrorism in just a couple of days because on Wednesday of last week, RCMP arrested a 16-year-old in Calgary on an unrelated plot. Uh, and Garth, I know RCMP investigate these sorts of things. They're continually investigating radicalization online, trying to come up to ways to prevent it and then to bring uh, those who are involved to justice. Are there, are there warning signs? Are there typical signs that, for example, if a parent was uh, you know, talking to a child uh, that, that might be a red flag that, that somebody is going down this path? There are, are there there are Sid. I, I I think that well let, let's talk about those and talk about the challenge. So I mean I think one of the big ones which I, I think resonates with a lot of parents is um, any kind of drastic or unusual change um, in uh, in a youth's life, and that, and that can be change in terms of uh, who they're who they're hanging out with, who they're communicating with, uh, what it is that they're talking about. Um, if there are certain topics that are becoming more central to their, um, you know, sort of their everyday lives, uh, particularly if those are, are around uh, political issues um, uh, are, are often seen. Um, uh, the use of dehumanizing language. So if you have, you know, right. where, where youth are talking about people in terms that are, are, are you know, where they're, they're not really talking about them as human beings is concerning. Um, uh, any attempts at, at recruiting type behavior. Um, so trying to bring in friends or, or, or other associates into, uh, into a movement um, uh, is another one. A lot of, uh, uh, many, many sort of sources will talk about um, identification with specific groups. I think there is a degree of truth of that, but I think we want to not overly focus on that because it, it, it's not only groups, it can just be movements of people that are, are so just sort of who are, who, who are youth contacting with who are they predominantly talking with online and what are they talking about i i i think are the the the, the main issues the one proviso i would always throw onto it sid is it's very hard to distinguish that from teenagers doing a lot of other things or teenagers just doing the business of being a teenager um and again and trying to find stuff so it's it you know none of these are are direct they are just sort of uh, in combination in concert you know, as a group, they would re, they they might be worth investigating further. Yeah, and it's a good point because uh, there are, are you know, I mean, it's not it's not easy growing up, and and we yeah. talked about that earlier about uh, you know teens uh, wanting to fit in and, and kind of figure out where they belong, and and as a parent, taking that step from maybe recognizing some behavioral changes in your child maybe recognizing or getting the sense that they might be hanging around with people that uh, it might be surprising because you wouldn't think that was the group that they might have been hanging out with six months ago. It can be very difficult sometimes, I think, or at least challenging. Parents find it challenging to really monitor uh, their, their children's activity online. But if you, are, if you do suspect in terms of 
radicalization and something as serious as this, that, that, you know, maybe, uh, your child is being drawn into something. What's the step after that? Is it simply talking to the child or there, are there services that you can reach out to? Is it going directly to authorities? Because that would be, I think, a, a really, really major step and a really emotional one for most parents. Yeah, I mean, in an ideal world, we would all want to sit down and have that conversation with our children, but we're all aware it's not always that easy. People have different abilities to do that, and and children are different in how they would respond to that. So, um, you know, if one has the ability to have those conversations, but if not, you're you're right. So, like, it's very challenging to say to any parent, go to the authorities. Um, But I do think that there are resources out there. Um, Just to mention one, there's a a program called Shift BC, which is a provincially run program that tries to help individuals um, and connect them with services that might be, that might address some of the concerns that kids have that are leading to radicalization. So what we see a lot with, particularly with really younger, with younger people is the radicalization isn't the result of some political, you know, change. It's that they're feeling extreme anxiety at school and they don't know what to do with that anxiety so rather than focus on the extremism part of it try to maybe focus on the anxiety part of it get help get counseling you know completely separate from the you know you you know you shouldn't be sharing these materials online but just how to help deal with with the anxiety and and we have found increasingly that if we can deal with some of the underlying concerns that then the some of the the more extremist behavior tends to fall away uh, some good tips and some good suggestions, Gar. Thanks for your time. We do appreciate it. It's a, it's a tough topic to tackle for parents, but uh, it's certainly an important one given uh, what's been happening, not just with these arrests over the last uh, several days, but the trends that we've been seeing over time. Thank you for your time tonight. Thank you very much, Sid. 